So last week, Pastor Ben kicked us off on a new uh, series in Acts chapter 2, where we're talking about life together. And today, I, I want to I talk about two things. I want to talk about, as we, as we read the second chapter of Acts, and particularly the last passage that we're looking at, there seems to be this, this ethos or this uh, value-operating value system under the hood. So I want to look at that, and then I want to look at what happens when we don't have that in our lives and in our community. And so I thought Ben did a fantastic job last week of talking about being devoted, how the early church was devoted. They devoted themselves to apostles' teaching, to each other, to breaking bread, and, and so on and so forth. And so, again, I want to continue to look at the value system or the ethos of that early community. It's a, it's a brand new thing that is happening in Acts chapter 2. It's the, the, the early days, the early years of the church. And as Ben said last week, this isn't prescriptive, meaning it's not how everything has to go for all time, but it's more descriptive. It describes the rhythms and practices of, of worship and community that the early church uh, uh, underwent together. And therefore, it's, it is supposed to be set out as normative. In other words, this, this section in Acts chapter 2 is one of a couple sections that basically summarize. It's a summary set of verses that, that describe the normal practices that the author, Luke, meant for subsequent churches and generations of believers to keep and, and continue practicing. And so as I, I was reading the passage and, and you look at Acts 2 and you look at how excited they were, you look at how much time they gave to each other and how, how their lives went, it, it, it made me realize something is that, you know, my life doesn't always necessarily look like that. But then I have to remember, this is like, this is new and it's fresh and, it, and it's exciting. And in a way, I, I thought of the allegory of Plato's cave. And so if you're not familiar with, with the philosopher Plato, he uh, devised this concept to ponder the nature of belief versus knowledge. And the allegory invites us to imagine a scenario where prisoners are chained together in a cave and they're watching on the wall some sort of, of uh, like puppet show. And basically the idea in this, in this story is that there are people who know that these prisoners are caged and are, are conducting this, this puppet show based on the fire that's behind all of them, okay? It's, 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 just stick with me if you've never heard of this, but this is, I'll show you how this applies, okay? So he invites us to imagine what if the prisoners realized they were just watching, they were in a cave, chained to the wall, watching a puppet show, and at some point after realizing that, they escaped and they came outside of the cave and the whole wild, wide world opened up in technicolor to them, right? So it's the understanding of you can know something, you can know you're, that, there's, that there's some sort of show going on on, on on a wall that you're looking at versus the belief of the bigger, wider picture that we exist in. And, and I believe, I believe the early church had that experience. And this may, you may not be familiar with Plato's cave, but you're very familiar in storytelling because we see this in, in films all the time. You see this in films like The Truman Show and The Matrix, right? Somebody wakes up and realizes their world is quite different than what they have been living in, right? So check this out. Most recently, it's in the movie Free Guy. 
where, because I, I went to the movie with a couple of dudes, uh, it was a good time. Literally, Guy is this non-playable character in a game, and he literally has his eyes open when he puts a pair of sunglasses on and sees all of the Fortnite-like things that are going on around him, and he, he gains his own agency to be able to play the game he wants to. He has a Plato's Cave moment. And it's the same thing for the early church, where they have been, they've been in a religious system where God created the world and they had these religious practices, but God was way out there. They did these sacrifices to atone for their sins. And then Jesus came and gave his life so that they could be near to God, that that relationship once and for all, the chasm is bridged and they now have not just God way out there, but God came near and through the power of the Holy Spirit, God lives in them. They literally have a technicolor awakening that goes on. And of course, they live life differently. To, to come from a place of knowledge to belief, like Truman, like Neo, like Guy, is to live your life a different way. And so when you're reading Acts chapter two, and you go, oh my goodness, they're just like really into this. And like, I love Jesus and I think God is really great and Holy Spirit has done some cool things. This is like, this is next level stuff. I, I don't, I, I had this experience, maybe you did too. If you, I don't know if you grew up in the church or, or maybe you didn't and, and you had a, a, a conversion experience, you had a salvation experience. I had that in college where the, there was a moment where I was, I was considering the claims of Jesus, and then I had an incident, and I got pulled over for a DUI, and I was totally humiliated, and then a, a mentor of mine led me to Jesus in the back of a coffee shop in Aggieville, and in that moment, shame and guilt were gone. Yet there were repercussions, and I had to walk some things out, and there was a whole lot of God that, to, that, that, that I was gonna find out about, and I'm still on that journey, but in that moment, things like, it, it, it was an awakening of God is real and God is powerful. And I do think that was the experience of the early church, to go from a place of, yes, we believe in God. Yes, we know God. Yes, we, we know we're supposed to do these things, but now they've experienced. They really believe. They, they know God intimately in a different way. So, the following summary passage that Ben looked at, we're going to look at again today, is in the, the, the first part of the, the, the book of Acts. It's in the last section of chapter 2. And it describes that community. It describes their rhythms and, and their practices. I'm going to read from the NIV. You can follow along if you want to, beginning of verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together. There's three, three togethers right there. They were together, they met together, and they ate together. And, and in that, they, they shared everything that they had together with each other. And then it ends with this. With glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So verses 44 through 46, those, those three togethers is really where I want to focus our attention today. 
And I want to point that word together out. That's so important. The, the scripture, we believe that the, the scripture is inspired, mean, mean, meaning that God breathed it. He, he inspired and he led along the different writers of scripture. And when we're reading the words of Jesus and we're reading through the book of Acts, there's no misplaced words in scripture. There's no ink that, that, is, that is extraneous. So every word there is important to us. And so when we see repeated words, that's like an ancient exclamation point. When Jesus says very truly, duck. You ever notice that? When he goes truly, truly, it's like, oh, Jesus said two words together. Okay, something big's about to happen. When the scripture says together so often, we need to understand that this is the normative practice and the, the writers of scripture are explaining something super important that we may miss, but we need to retain in our regular practices of worship and community in our lives today. And by them doing this, this life together, they're just following in the way of Jesus. Jesus, Jesus founded his church with his 12 disciples and then uh, the, the, the other crowds, the 120, and there's a, a 72 in there in the gospels and these crowds of thousands. They're just doing what they saw Jesus doing. This isn't new for them. This is a continuation of this life together in community where they share of themselves. Mark Chapter 3, verse 14 says this about Jesus. He, Jesus, appointed 12 that they might be with him. Check that out. That they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. Notice, before they ever do anything, God's design in community is that they would be with him first. Now, this, this scripture in and of itself blows my mind because we're, we're talking about Jesus, the God-man, fully God, fully man. He has no needs in and of himself as God. He is in need of nothing but he desires deeply to form a community that he could be a part of. Isn't that interesting? He cho chose 12 that they might be with him. To be with God, that is our design. To be with each other, that is the overflow of love working itself out practically in the day-to-day -day stuff of life. It's life together. Jesus needed nothing and he chose 12 to be with him. And those 12 then continued on in that way of life. Are you, are you tracking with me? You know how fascinating that is if you just sit in that? I mean, that's just, what is that, 15 words? If you just sat in that, like there is so much there. Jesus, why did you want people? You don't need anybody, but you wanted these like teenage dudes. Like that's messy, by the way. Like it cost Jesus something. You got, you know, Dylan, the youth pastor back there, what's it like hanging out with teenagers, right? Like it's, you're supposed to say it's great because you know, you're the youth pastor, but it's messy. I, I've got a 10 and a seven year old. It's messy to, to hang out and, and kind of go, oh, are you gonna get this? But Jesus, had the patience and he had the love because he had the desire to form a community and not do this on his own, to come near and be with them together. So this brings up an, uh, an important idea in the formation of community because the one thing I know about being together in community is that just wanting community isn't enough. It's not enough to just want to be together with people. That can't be the mission, that can't be the vision. That's actually a life together is the overflow of something operating underneath the surface. 
And that's the thing that I want to name today that I think the, the scripture, verses 44 through 46, when it mentions togetherness and what they did together, I think that is what we need to return to. And that's the idea of generosity. That this is not just a people hanging out together because, you know, that's, they don't have Twitter and they don't have, you know, great brunch places. They just, they, so what do you do when you're bored? Well, you go find people to hang out with and that's it. No, it goes way beyond that. They were practicing a life of generosity that really became the glue of life together because community in and of itself will actually kill itself. If your value, if your desire is just to have community, that thing's going to eat itself up. What it needs is to become a byproduct of something deeper. It's the way of love expressed through generosity, a loving, giving, serving community like we see here. Let, let me read 40, 44 through 46 again. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Now, this wasn't some prototypical, like we can't read our capitalist versus socialist uh, framework back into this. It, it's a different culture and it's a, it's a different way of life, but there, there's, this, there's this commingling of private property because we, we see later in the book of Acts where they're selling their possessions and they're getting, they're getting uh, uh, congratulated for that. So there is a private property sense, but in this sense, in the early church, it's what's mine is yours. And if I'm ever in need, then you'll share freely. It's, it's this open-handed like, we call this fridge rights. Do you have fridge rights with people in your life where at any point someone could come in without ringing your doorbell, they could open your fridge and they're welcome to anything in there and then sit down on your living room couch or you know, maybe if you don't do that, it's definitely your dining room table. You know, it's like no food in the, in the living room, that's fine. House rules. But they could do that and, and, and they don't have to wait on the porch for you to like look at the Ring app and see if that's actually someone you wanna answer the door for. If you're like, you're at home in the basement, but it's like, hey, I'm busy right now, come back later. Like, does, who, who has fridge rights? Who has the code to your garage door and they could just let themselves in and make themselves at home? That's the kind of community that the early church enjoyed. Where their stuff was their stuff, but it was God given for something called stewardship or management. God gave me this stuff for the enjoyment and, and, and for the, the needs of all. Because we're better together. I'm better when this family is doing well. And if I have something that they need that I can share, even up to selling possessions because they're missing out on, on their rent or, or they can't quite make the medical bills work, then I want them to be doing well because they are part of what we are doing together. That's the early church. So they had all things in common. They sold property possessions, gave to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in temple courts. They broke bread in their homes together. So this idea of generosity touches many points because, of course, we're talking about financial generosity. When the grace of God shows up in your life, it absolutely will touch everything, including your wallet. It has to. It has to touch your bank account for it to be the actual grace of God that moves powerfully throughout your life and you're surrendered and open-hearted and open-handed to everything that he has for you, it means, it means your stuff and it means your money. That God, you can move me to do whatever you want to do because you gave it all to me anyway. But it's not just money. It's time to, to, to live a life together means you're majorly inconvenienced and you're surrendering your time. 
That means you're not budgeting your calendar where meetings overlap. You actually have margin. You actually can stop along the side of the road and help your buddy out, change his or her tire. You have margin for that single mom to go, let me just hold your baby while you take a nap. Hey, we got this. We're okay. It's generosity of time and attention to think of instead of, you know, that person hasn't like reached out to me lately. I go, I'm going to do it first. I'm not waiting. Jesus didn't wait till I reached out to him. Why would I use the grace of God to make an excuse for myself to not reach out and build community with other people that I haven't heard from in a while, that I haven't seen except in, a, in front of a Zoom screen for quite a while? No, when the grace of God touches our life and compels us to life together, we go first. We don't wait till the other person initiates. We don't wait till the other person has this breakdown moment and, and needs someone to be involved in their life. We step in. Hey, give me that baby. I'm good at baby wrestling. Hey, you need a dinner cooked? Like, like we could drop food off. I could DoorDash some food. That's no problem. My DoorDash thumbs are like, they're, they're swole. I got this. Right? There's a generosity of time and attention to carve out and make room for others and not shove it full. God, we're at the beginning of a new semester. I know what that's like. Whether you're a parent like I am or whether you're a college student like I was, the tendency is to drop down in the beginning of the semester, you know, get your class schedule or get your kid's class schedule and then fill it with all the extracurricular activities, figure out how many sports your kids can be in because honestly, you're living vicariously through their touchdowns. Let's be honest, dads, right? Like the tendency is to, to, to respond to every coffee day and, and to just like whittle down your time. So at the end, and I'm just gonna, I'm gonna show you my cards. I'm gonna call you to join a group at the end of this message today. But the tendency is to, to shove your life so full of stuff, you go, oh, I don't have time for that. I don't know where my time went. Well, you had like 30 disposable hours two weeks ago and now it's full. Like I know how that happens. You get excited, you know, or like you introverts, you get excited and you over sign up and you're figuring out like, what can I cancel last minute? Like what text message do I need to send to get out of this? Like, oh my goodness, my pets at home need me. I can't go anywhere, right? Like I know how it goes. But to, to genuinely be in life together means that we prioritize certain things over others because we wanna practice a life of generosity. I, I might be needed in this group. I might be needed in this situation. I'm a part of this community and therefore it demands, the grace of God demands that I participate with my whole heart and my whole life, open to the needs of those around me. Willie James Jennings in his commentary on the book of Acts says this, a new kind of giving is exposed at this moment one that binds bodies together at the first reciprocal donation where the followers will give themselves to one another. The possessions will follow. What was at stake here was not the giving up of all possessions, but the giving up of one, each one, one by one as the Spirit gave direction and as the ministry of Jesus made demand. Thus, anything they had might be used to bring people into the sight and sound of the incarnate life. Anything they had might be used to draw people to life together and life itself and away from death and the end 
and in the reign of poverty, hunger, and despair. Such things were subject to being given up to God. The giving is for the sole purpose of announcing the reign of the Father's love through the Son and the bonds of communion together with the Spirit. When God moves, he touches everything. When you say yes, he takes you up on that offer. And there are demands. Grace does demand a response. This isn't, I prayed a prayer once and therefore I'm going to heaven. To surrender your life completely to Jesus is actually to surrender your life to his community, his family, his church as well. And I'll just be honest, like it doesn't have to be this community, but if you follow the way of Jesus, it has to be some community that you give yourself to wholeheartedly. So I don't want to give you the pressure of like, you've got to sign up today for us right now if you're a new visitor, but you have to at some point in time make a decision that I will give myself. And I'm telling you, if you're waiting, you know, it's six months later and you're still like church shopping, that's too much. There are way too many communities in this city that are fantastic and following the way of Jesus. If you can't commit, that's on you. Now, I know there might be church hurt, church trauma that you have to work through. I want to acknowledge that. But you've got to find a Tove church, a good uh, healing, holistically healing church to be a part of to work through that. Don't wait six months, 12 months, 18 months, and I haven't found a church I love. Find the church that Jesus wants you to be a part of and give yourself to them because they'll give themselves to you. Derwin Gray says this. He's an author and and, uh, pastor and and East Coast, one of the Carolinas, says this. Dr. Ray says this. The early church, a mixture of Jews, Gentiles, and had no political power. Rome ruled. There was no Christian Supreme Court. They had no cultural power. They were persecuted by both Jews and Gentiles. They had no economic power, but they had love and the power of Jesus. So for me, that helps me put into perspective like why they were together so much. They were their support system. They were what each other had. They didn't have representation in the government. They didn't have a voice. They didn't have economic power. They didn't have security, but what they had was each other. And you know, that was enough to take 120 people from an upper room to about 100 years later where there were literally millions across the Mediterranean. Like what they had together in the power of the Holy Spirit was enough that this Jesus movement got outside the bounds of Jerusalem and started to take over because of the bonds of love. But what happens when there's no one around to be generous? What happens when you withhold yourself or there's just not a full surrender or entering into this kind of community? What happens when there's no one there? Ecclesiastes speaks to this. Ecclesiastes chapter four, verse nine. Two are better than one. You guys know this. If you grew up in church, you probably had this like, this was a a fighter verse or a memory verse, right? Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. Well, what I love about uh, Solomon is he doesn't often tell us things we don't already know. He just reminds us of the things that we've already always known all along. Two are better than one. Yeah, absolutely. Have, have you ever built a shed? Man, two are better than one when you're like, you know, arms high with timber over your head and like, I've got to nail something together. I, you know, my five-year-old can't help me in this moment. I need, I need somebody, just anybody, Lord, right? Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity, but woe, but man, it is too bad when anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. So like you make a mistake, 
life doesn't go the way, you know, life happens, someone else makes a mistake. Woe to that person that doesn't have someone else doing life together with them. Solomon continues, the one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. That's a great wedding verse, right? But man, it's just a great life verse, a practical verse. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Though one may be overpowered, you may not say overpowered like you got in a fist fight in the alley last night, but you might say, I feel overwhelmed. I feel, who has not felt overwhelmed in the last 18 months? And woe to that person who has not had community to help them walk along. And I'm telling you, this is one of the reasons we have church to begin with, is that we're not as great on our own as we really think we are. And it is a pity when someone falls down and doesn't have someone doing life together to help pick them up. So there was a, there was a Corvette Museum that in, in Kentucky a few years ago that ran into a problem. Uh, in Kentucky, they have these um, uh, uh, underwater kind of reservoirs and aqueducts that sometimes come through quickly and erode the soil that structures had been built on. And what happened in this Corvette Museum is that a sinkhole opened up and swallowed up like all these, these expensive Corvettes. And I know some of you Ford guys are going, I don't see a problem with this picture, actually. <laughs> that looks perfectly fine to me. But in the Corvette Museum, like, they built this museum with... with a lot of money, representing a lot of money in cars there, and it just overnight swallowed up these, these cars to, to like just astronomical uh, monetary damage. And this is what can happen in our lives, where we're going along, we think things are good on the surface. I got my job unlocked, my kids are in school, like my marriage seems good, but overnight, sometimes, when we don't have this kind of life together, when we don't have, I mean, sometimes it really does take people bumping into us and, and paying attention to the reactions that come out from the inside. If we're not paying attention to that, there are times overnight, like that one, the, 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 the straw that breaks the camel's back, so to speak, right? Overnight, something drops and, and we just flip out. You, you've seen this maybe in your friends' lives, maybe you, you, uh, that's your family of origin, just like overnight your dad picked up and left. Like something happened. Everything looked good to the kids, but overnight, boom, dad's gone out of the picture. And that marked you as a person. Now, what if, what if at some point in time, someone was in your family's life to come along beside them, to help your mom out? Who, who was maybe, could have been in your dad's life before that, right? And you know, I'm speaking metaphorically. I don't really know any of your stories about this, but would you, Maybe there could have been someone in your family's life before the other shoe dropped, before the thing happened and, and the marriage blew up or the family blew up or we realized, you know, Uncle Joe was not who he says he was. What if there was somebody who was already in your family that when that, that, that sinkhole opened up would be there to walk you through those times? We think we're invincible. We think We've been told from our culture that we can do it on our own, that we're actually better off on our own, that the American dream is we do it ourselves, that no one gives me any help. And I'm telling you, there, if you look, if you look at the church, if you look at our culture, there are sinkholes opening up all over the landscape. What if? What if God intended a better way? And we think he did. We think he intended the life together. Because no one can prevent life happening to you. 
No one can prevent when a coronavirus or a recession or whatever it, it is that is coming in your life that you don't know about. I mean, how many people had a 2020 vision for their lives? 2020, 2018, 2019, you're like, 2020 vision just has a ring to it, right? How many churches had this 2020 vision of, oh, oh baby, 2020 is gonna be our year. I got a word of the year, God has spoken to me, and then it's like, what just happened? Where I saw a meme the other day of like, you, you remember, uh, uh, okay, can I nerd out just for a second? It's, uh, it's uh, uh, Captain America, uh, Winter Soldier, when he's running uh, in DC. Uh, actually, it's, it's Falcon, he's running, you know, and, and Falcon represents like me processing 2020. And Captain America, who laughs him several times, is, is like two steps behind him with 2022, four months away. Like, is that crazy or what? Like, I'm still, we're processing 2020. 2022 is about to happen. Like, who knows what that has in store? None of us can tell. But what if God intended life together to help us through whatever, whatever's coming for us? For most of us, uh, we feel exposed when we talk about doing life together. We feel like I have to admit all my needs. I'm going to be plopped down in a group uh, full of strangers and just like, I think Ben described it as sing kumbaya last week. Like we're just going to sing kumbaya and I'm going to be really awkward and weirded out. We're not talking about dropping down in just like all your dirtiest, darkest secrets. What we're, what we're inviting you into is a way of life where you get to know people, people get to know you, and you walk in the power of Jesus and the way of Jesus so that you are transformed day by day and you become more like him. Sarah and I, fortunately, have, have been involved with some great groups over the years. We've got to practice this. Groups where, you know, when someone couldn't pay the rent, there's a collection that's taken up. When someone's medication is too expensive, there's a collection. When someone, you know, someone's son needs a ride from school to after school activities. Someone needs a babysitter last minute. We've got groups where it's like, can I just drop my baby off with you and go and have coffee by myself tonight? Like, yes, sure, we'll do that. We're here for that. And I just can't imagine what it would have been like over the last 18 months to not do life together with people. I have a, I have a men's group, actually, uh, that we've met together for 18 months. I think it started about April of, of 2020. We met together every week, almost every week. I'd say we're like 90%, right? So it's not every week, but it's, it's up there. We're committed to, to every week. Just walking through, studying the scripture together, praying for each other, checking in on each other. It started off on Zoom and then it moved to a coffee shop and then it moved to the tap house. And it just, it has some different iterations there. There have been some people that have come in. There have been some people that have come out. But there's a group of men over the last 18 months that have just been grounding for me. I don't always want to go Sunday evening because sometimes I'm just, I'm, I'm zonked. Like my Sunday nap to the glory of God just didn't take in the way that I'm used to, right? But I would tell you, I'm so grateful for the commitment of these men to go, hey, you're coming, right? We're meeting, right? We're gonna do this, right? And, and just walking through scripture and hearing the voice of the Holy Spirit. So you could make it through the last 18 months, but I don't know why you would want to. Honestly, don't. I, I don't know why you would want to do life by yourself and think that's the better way. Because based on the, the idea that Jesus has set forth of human flourishing for humankind, that, that, that individualistic, 
by myself lifestyle does not express the full design of your creation. You're, you're not wired to do that, and so you're living actually b- below the potential for which God created you. And also, this actually under, uh, this erodes trust in our life. When, you, when people see you doing life on your own, we do kind of wonder, like, why? Uh, Brene Brown, in her book, Dare to Lead, said this. Um, she's, uh, you know, Brene Brown, whatever. Look on TED Talks. So anyway, she's wonderful. Uh, we asked a thousand leaders, what do your team members do that earns your trust? Like, what helps pull this, this team together and where you can work together? The most common answer, asking for help. When it comes to people who do not habitually ask for help, the leaders who polled, we polled explained that they would not delegate important work to them because the leaders did not trust that they would raise their hands and ask for help. Within my own team, I see this play out all the time. To the team members I trust the most, I will hand over important projects simply because I know that if they're stuck, if they don't understand, it's too much work, or if it doesn't make sense, they will come back to me. That makes me feel safe in delegation. Not only will things not get too far down the wrong path, but the team member who is acknowledging a need for assistance also leaves space for me to come in and help guide. It has nothing to do with intelligence or competency or raw talent. It has everything to do with a relationship of trust. So what we need to be aware of is our cultural bent towards radical individualism. The, the cultural value says you should do life on your own. Your life is all about you. You're the final arbiter of truth and goodness for yourself. If you like it, it's good. If you don't, if it makes you uncomfortable, it's bad. Vivek Murthy is a former Surgeon General of ours, and he wrote a book called Together. He says this, Intimate or emotional loneliness is the longing for a close confidant or intimate partner, someone with whom you share a deep mutual bond of affection and trust. Relational or social loneliness is the yearning for quality friendships and social companionship and support. Collective loneliness is the hunger for a network or community of people who share your sense of purpose and interest. These three dimensions together reflect the full range of high-quality social connections that humans need in order to thrive. Their lack of relationships and any of these dimensions can make us lonely, which helps to explain why we may have a supportive marriage yet still feel lonely for friends and community. We're wired for life together in multiple dimensions of our life. And if we're missing out on one of those dimensions, you could have a great marriage, a great home life, a great work life, but still walk, walk into church and go, I don't really feel close to these people. And overall in your life, I don't know that I have close friends and I feel lonely. We actually need this in our wiring. Vivek Murthy is not a Christian uh, that I'm aware of, but he's, he's hammering a point home that you need multiple points of entry and, and just compartmentalizing and saying, I'm fine two out of three, I'm fine with shallow relationships, does not scratch that itch for how we were designed. We were designed for life together in community. So how do you know if you're under the sway of radical individualism? Let me just give you a tip. You hear a message like this and think of all the ways you don't actually need community. That's not the spirit of God influencing you. That's more of our culture saying, no, don't listen, you're fine. Look, your parents did it fine. Look, your your siblings are doing it fine. You don't need this. The spirit of God is probably troubling you right now. If you, if you are bent saying, I'm not gonna be connected deeply to people, you are feeling pretty awkward and you're looking for the exit door because the Holy Spirit right now is probably going, hey, I'm inviting you. I want you to be connected in a significant, meaningful way to people. 
And so you just have to pay attention to the awkwardness or the, the discomfort that you feel and, and not give yourself to the radical individualism ethos that says, if I don't like it, it's bad. It could be the spirit of God bringing conviction to say, hey, would you take a next step? Would you listen to my voice and follow me? Okay? And what I want you to know, one final thing, is that when you see people in groups, when you see these eight group leaders and you see people signing up, I want you to know one thing. Everyone else has the same excuse you do for not joining a group. I'm too busy, I'm too tired, I'm too stressed, I'm too new. It doesn't work with my schedule, with my wife's schedule. It feels awkward to meet with new people. Everybody who's in a group says those same things. The difference is the people in groups have pushed past that. To say my highest value is to follow Jesus and to be known in community and to be generous with my time and my talent and my treasure, the trifecta, the trinity of generosity, right? So what if, what if we approach the offer of groups differently? Instead of looking at the eight groups and going, well, this one, I'm not interested in this or this doesn't fit with my schedule or I don't know those people, that's radical individualism and consumerism saying, does it work for me? What if the assumption was flipped? What if the assumption based on Acts chapter two and, the, and, and what you know of Jesus and the rest of the scripture, what if the assumption is God wants me to be in a group as soon as I can get to one? What if that's the assumption, not does it work for me? And if it doesn't, I'm disqualified or I'm excused. What if the assumption is God wants me in a group because this is the way I was made to flourish and you approached it from that perspective of discernment to say, which of these can I give myself to for this season? Because we're not asking you to sign up till Jesus comes back, by the way. We're asking you for basically like a 12, 13 week commitment of showing up regularly, participating, and being a part of a group like that. What if, what if the assumption is, Jesus is wanting me to do this because this is the way I was made to flourish? And we go from there. So I'll have the worship team come on up. We're gonna transition in a, mo- in a moment to a time of communion. And I just, I wanna give this question to you. Why don't you stand with me? Why don't we just prepare our hearts, okay, as we transition? I, I wanna give you this next step, this-, this question just to chew on. To sit with maybe during communion, maybe even this week, carry this with you. The question is, what group is the Holy Spirit highlighting for me to join? If that assumption is God wants me to be doing life together with people, then the question is, which group is God highlighting to me right now, okay? So we're gonna transition into a time of communion. Communion is a remembrance. It remembers the Last Supper where Jesus met with his his closest friends, his, his followers, his disciples, and they shared a meal. He repurposed the Passover Supper, the, the, the Supper of, of Exodus, of Deliverance, and he centered himself in that story. And he told his disciples, do this in remembrance of me. And as you notice in the book of Acts, where they were together, they ate and they drank a lot. And in those meals, those, those times of breaking bread and, and sharing fellowship together, they observed this regularly. They observed the Lord's Supper, communion, Eucharist, however you're, you're familiar with, with understanding it. So the Lord's Supper is for those who are in a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ and in a right relationship with others in the body of Christ, specifically the community before us now. So we invite you, if, if, if you uh, need to take a moment 
and you need to remember this meal and to just do a, do a heart check with Jesus to say, is there anything blocking me and you? Or to do a heart check with others in the church. Is there anything hindering fellowship between me and someone else? I invite you to do that right now. So if you would bow your heads. And if this is even your first time thinking about doing communion and being invited to the Lord's table, and if you're not sure where you are with God right now, you're, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't necessarily say I'm a Christian or, or I, I grew up in church or, or whatever. This is an opportunity now to just invite Jesus into your life. To, to do what we call surrender our lives to Jesus. So I'll, I'll just lead a prayer. You can pray this in your hearts or out loud or however you feel comfortable. Online, you're, you're welcome to participate with your own bread and, and juice as well. So Jesus, I recognize that you are God and you are Lord. And so in this moment where we're gathering around your table, I surrender my life to you. I give you my heart. And I receive your forgiveness. I, I, I believe that you laid your life down on behalf of me. And I receive that forgiveness. And I ask for your Holy Spirit to fill me. Amen. Amen. So, practically speaking, what we'll do is, um, if you can kind of stay to the right of the aisles, um, as, you, as you come up and go back, that'll help with the flow. We have servers here that will serve you the bread. So if you take the cup, and, and then we've also got some gluten-free options, I was just reminded. Thank you, Katie, that's awesome. So they'll, they'll hand you a piece of bread, and if you take the cup, and you're welcome to, to step over and, and, and partake, or you can go back to your seat if you need a moment of reflection. Uh, there's lots of ways that churches practice the Lord's table, uh, so we just want to walk you through how we do it here. So, so as soon as you're ready, just start lining up here in the middle. Actually, let, let me redact that. Go, go up the middle here, and then back to your seats on the sides. That, that makes more sense, right? So up the middle... They'll serve you, and then you can return on the outside back to your seats, okay? Thank you all. This teaching was recorded in partnership between Tallgrass Community Church and The Well. For more resources like this, visit tallgrass.church and thewellmhk.com.